All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Okay, we hear it every election year. Quick, elect these candidates so they'll stop these other candidates from doing something you don't like. And that's become very, very common within conservative circles. It's all about the idea of stopping a left-wing agenda. And you know what? That's certainly legitimate. Certainly legitimate. You might even say it is a necessary component of an effective strategy, but is it a sufficient one? And I would argue that it is not, right? It's not good enough for conservative candidates to get out there and talk about all the things that they'll stop. They need to talk about what they'll actually do. And more specifically, what sort of world would be created if their policies went into effect? And today we're going to talk about some of the common narratives that you see, the campaign strategies, and more specifically, six things I think Republicans should run on, conservatives should run on, in order to win the next election and actually govern effectively. We talk about all that today on Making the Argument, where we make the arguments to defend a free society. All right, 1994. 1994 is the last time I can remember a, a kind of large nationwide effort for conservatives to run on something, right? It wasn't just about stopping the various things that the Clinton administration was doing. Because remember, if you remember, Bill Clinton ran on this whole idea that it was all about the economy. He ran on this idea that the era of big government was over, et cetera, et cetera. Like that, that was his narrative. And as soon as he got into office, you had Hillary Care, you had raising taxes, you had all these other things that made people really mad because it was a departure from what he said he actually wanted to do, or at least what he alluded to what he wanted to do. And so the result was conservatives got together and said, it's not good enough for us to say, oh my gosh, this guy wasn't honest about what he wanted to do. We actually need to demonstrate to people what it would look like if we were back in power, right? And it was an excellent strategy. And we're going to go over what, what were some of the reasons why that strategy worked. Because again, it's, it's been a long time since 1994, and there's been other attempts to do things similar, but none of it got the same traction that the contract with America did under Newt Gingrich. Right? So what did the contract with America have that was unique about it? Well, first of all, it offered specifics. Right? It wasn't just this idea. It wasn't general statements about we're going to lower taxes, or we're going to reduce regulations, um, or we're going to strengthen the military. Right? It was very, very specific things that they were going to do. And it also had deadlines. So it wasn't just, hey, elect us and we'll do this when we get around to it. It was elect us and within the first 100 days, we will pass all of these things through the House of Representatives. right? And, and that was important because people had a deadline now. They had something where it's like, okay, if I'm voting for you, or if I'm, maybe I'm voting for you the first time because I like what you have to say, but I don't really trust politicians, you now have given me a deadline to reference. 
You have given me something that I can go to and I can look back on what you said versus what you did and I can determine whether or not you kept your word. And if you did, well, then I might be inclined to vote for you again. And if you did not, well, then I know to never trust you again, right? So, so adding that, it's, it's almost like putting a guarantee on a product, right? If you do this, we will do this. And if you don't do that, well, then now I don't got to trust you anymore, right? And so I think that was a very, very important component. It was being specific about what you were going to do and it was offering a deadline on when you were going to do it. The third component was it was a contrast. Oh my gosh, it wasn't a bunch of conservatives running on you know, left-wing light. It, it wasn't this idea that, well, yeah, the left-wing wants to spend $2 trillion, but we want to spend $1.5 trillion, and that's, that's far more fiscally responsible. No, that's not what was going on. They were running on things like a balanced budget amendment. right? They were not only running on things like that, but they were also running on those things which were very unpopular for the American people, like Hillary Care. So it was this idea that there was, a, there was a stark contrast. It wasn't slow rolling the other party's agenda versus you know, steam rolling the other party's agenda. It was this idea of, if you put us in power, these are the things we're gonna do. These are the direct contrasts, all right? And this is the overall benefit to you if these things pass, right? Welfare reform was a huge component of that. So I, I think those three components were very, very important. It was the idea that they offered specific policy positions. They offered a deadline on when they would actually pass these policy positions, like what they could do within the power that they controlled. And then thirdly, it, was, it offered a contrast. This, this was not just a, you know, a, a, a diet version of the other party's agenda. This was a significant departure from what was currently being done to what they would do if they actually got power. Right? And, and largely within 1994, you, you saw the, the largest swing. I think it was something like, you know, Republicans picked up, I think it was over 40 seats that year in the House of Representatives, flipped the House for, I believe it was the first time in over 40 years that Republicans had controlled the House of Representatives. And, and to a large degree, they made good on their promises. Right now, I'm not saying they accomplished everything because you still had to have the Senate voting for it. You still had the president being willing to sign it into law. President Clinton absolutely refused to sign a balanced budget amendment. Um, but a lot of things that they did try to get done, they did get done, right? They stopped Hillary Care. They, they passed significant welfare reform. There was some other legislation that they passed um, that, that, again, was economically beneficial, socially beneficial. And the most important part was is they delivered on what they said they were going to do. And so Republicans actually maintained control of the House of Representatives for well over a decade as a result. And so I, I think it's important to understand that those three components were, were critical in making the contract with America successful. And the reason why I point this out is because there are a lot of Republicans that think that the way that we're going to win, especially in more difficult districts, is to essentially run these milk toast campaigns where they surrender on pretty much every major you know, Republican platform policy position and instead kind of embrace this, well, I'll do what the Democrats are going to do, but I'll do it nicer. Or I'll do it more fiscally responsible than, than they will. Look, if you're offering the same thing to people, well, then whichever side is offering it bigger, better, and faster is probably going to win, right? And, and that was, that's been a big problem with a lot of Republican messaging. So what, is, what has been the left-wing narrative against us that has caused Republicans to go away from kind of bold, you know, aggressive policy positions and showing contrast into this, this kind of like, you know, position where it's just watered down liberalism is what Republicans are pushing. And, and I think there's, there's a couple things with the left-wing narrative that has been successful uh, on pushing Republicans back. One is you only have problems, you don't have solutions, right? You hear this all the time is that, yeah, Republicans are constantly running against Democrats and they're constantly telling you what they're against, but they're not really telling you what they're for, right? And there's a, there's a fundamental misunderstanding there 
uh, with respect to what conservatives tend to believe versus what people on the left tend to believe about the proper role of government. But the overall narrative that the left generally use against us has proven effective, right? When they, when they make it look like one side wants to solve problems and the other side only wants to complain about problems, you're going to go with the people that are offering solutions, right? And you might not even ask a whole lot of questions about the solutions if they're the only ones supposedly offering them, right? So that's the first narrative. Next one is at least we're doing something, right? So even when they offer a solution that doesn't necessarily work, their argument tends to be, well, at least we did something or at least we tried something or this is just a part of the process. You try one thing and if it doesn't work, you try something else. You know, but the bottom line is, again, we're focused on solving the problem, whereas those ideologues over there on the other side of the aisle just keep complaining about the problems and don't offer any real solutions. Again, there's a fundamental misunderstanding between offering solutions that I'm going to get to a little bit later, but that narrative is largely proven effective against conservatives. Another one is this idea that the Democrats have set them up to be the party of the poor and the marginalized, right? And by contrast, the Republicans are the party of the rich and the privileged, right? This is the, the narrative that they have pushed. And you see this being pushed in not just within political discourse or on the media, you see it being pushed in academia. You also see it being pushed in a lot of popular culture. You go and you watch a television show and guaranteed if you watch a television show, you watch a movie and it's political at all, and there is a Republican involved, the Republican is the one that's either screwing over the poor or destroying the environment or whatever it is, but it, it's always some brave, bold, you know, compassionate Democrat standing up against this mean Republican that just wants to eat the poor and feed the rich, right? That, that's the overall narrative that's been pushed. What's interesting about this is, again, if you look at the overall donor profiles, it doesn't really play out in reality, but Democrats have managed to make that narrative stick. And in part of it, we can complain all day long about the media or pop culture, but as conservatives, we also have to take ownership of the fact that if something is happening, what is going to be our response to it? And that kind of leads me to my next point, and that is talking about what has the typical response been? Well, for a lot of Republicans, it's been, nah, -uh, right? <laughs> it's been this really, really weak idea of either trying to get very in-depth and in explaining a complex economic principle or you know, winning what looks like an academic debate when really what we're talking about is an overall social and pop culture debate, right? And that doesn't mean that the academic debate is not important. It just means that it's not the only component. And when you treat it as it is, when you treat like you were trying to win a point-by-point -point debate, like an, an Oxford-style debate here, as opposed to actually addressing people and meeting them where their needs at, you tend to lose the overall argument, even if you end up winning that individual debate. The other uh, approach to this is, again, this, this over- um, this over-reliance on us convincing people to vote for conservatives because we'll stop the Democrat agenda. Well, again, if, if your whole party platform is about obstruction, even if the obstruction you're talking about is good and noble, right? There are a lot of things that the government should not do, or there's a lot of things that certain politicians are trying to do that should be stopped, right? There's nothing wrong with that. But if everything that you're talking about seems to be obstruction or prevention, then it looks like you don't have any real solutions, right? Because if, if the Democrats are the ones getting out there and they're actually addressing problems, right? Maybe they're addressing them poorly. Maybe they're, the solutions they offer will make them worse. But if they look like they're the ones addressing it and we look like we're the ones trying to stop them, then somebody that's not really doing a deep dive into what the policy positions are, are just going to walk away with the impression that this dude's trying to help me and this person's trying to stop him from helping me. All right. The end, and then finally, this moves into the last part that I talked about a little bit earlier. And this is a lot of Republicans have, have essentially given into this idea that, well, the Democrats have won the larger philosophical debate about what the government should do or should not do, or the sort of problems that it should address. And so now it's just a question of, which party is going to be more you know, fiscally or socially responsible in the implementation of the democratic platform? 
right? Or, or which party is going to essentially in, embrace some of the foundational principles of the democratic platform without letting it go too far to the left, right? That should never be our position because as I said earlier, when, when, you, are, when you are presenting a value proposition to the voter, if you've essentially given into the idea that, yeah, the other side's ideas are, are the better ones, but I'll implement them better, nobody's going to buy that. Nobody's going to buy that you will do a better job of implementing their policy, right? They're, they're, there's just a natural assumption that if they're the ones that came up with the ideas, they'll do a better job of it. And again, in political discourse, if one side is offering bigger, faster, better, and the other side is offering you know, slower and more responsible, chances are you're not going to win because from their perspective, you've already given into their argument and now you're trying to slow roll all the good things that you've already agreed would exist if their agenda passed. So it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. So now that we've talked a little bit about kind of what happened in 1994, we've talked about the leftist narrative that's constantly used against conservatives, and we talked about you know, some of the bad responses that conservatives have often given to that narrative, we're going to go into what should we be doing, right? And I'm going to base a lot of this off of the idea of certain principles within 1994 and the contract with America. Now, does that mean we should run on all the same policy positions? No, not necessarily. Things change over time. Some things are more relevant than other things. But does it mean that we should still stand by our principles? Yes, if we believe they're correct, and I certainly do, and, and I, I articulate our principles along with the creed with this idea that we believe in individual liberty, we believe in property rights, we believe in personal responsibility, we believe in equal justice before the law, um, we believe in free market economics, we believe in constitutional limitations on government, we believe in a strong national defense, we believe in you know, faith in God as recognized by our founding fathers, right? These are all things that we believe in. These are core principles from which our policy positions are derived, right? So now, how do we market that, right? First, first things first, stand by it, but how do you not only market it, but how do you actually craft an agenda where you're providing those three things that we talked about before with the Contract America, right? You're providing specifics about what you'll do, you're providing a deadline on when you plan to do it, and you're actually providing a contrast with respect to what is currently going on versus what you would do, right? So elect us and this is what we will do. That's the first principle I think we need to, we need to focus on is that, we're, we're, and what we will do is not just gonna be about stopping bad things, it's also going to be about implementing good things, okay? The next thing that we need to focus on and how it will affect you Right? This is a big problem that I think we, we assume gets through in our messaging that it doesn't always does. It's this idea that, well, of course, free markets are better for people. You know, uh, of course, property rights are better for people. Look, if somebody's grown up in a public school system or, or a, um, a college environment where they don't believe that's true, you're going to have to first explain why those things work. And I don't just mean in a broader philosophical terms. You're going to have to explain why it works for them. Right? That's critical. Why does it work for them? So as we look at our overall principles, what we should be focused on is providing examples that don't just win some sort of you know, you know, esoteric academic argument, but actually focus in on meeting the very challenges that the Democrats claim to say that they're meeting, right? But we don't think they are. Okay, so then how are, how are we meeting that same thing? And that actually goes into a point that I brought up earlier, and that is this idea of solving problems, right? And this is why this is so important. We cannot allow the left to get away with this overall argument that the reason why they're the party of, of solving problems is because they're willing to use government power in order to achieve certain end states, right? They've actually framed the argument where whenever we look at a challenge or a problem in society, 
They've already set the stage for the, the primary question is going to be, what's the government going to do about it? And because they've always got a way that the government can do something about it, and because we largely don't necessarily agree that the government should always do something about a particular problem, then they've already set the stage where now we're either losing the argument because we're not offering, quote, a solution or a government solution, or we're losing the argument because we've just adapted one of their government solutions and we've promised to implement it better than they would. So this is the part that is fundamental. And as we look at our overall argument with respect to what we would do, when we would do it by, and what the contrast is, one of the biggest contrasts that we have to have emanate through our larger argument is when, when somebody on the left is saying that they're going, they've identified a problem, they've identified a challenge, right? And we may all agree that something is a particular problem or something is a particular challenge. And they offer up the government solution, right? Our goal should not just be to say, well, that's not a proper role of government. Our goal should be to point out, wait a second. When you offer a government solution, you're not simply, that doesn't happen in a vacuum. You're not simply saying the government's going to help in this way or the government's going to provide this sort of response. You're not just deciding what the government will do. You're actually deciding what everyone else will be able to do as well. And this is very critical because if the government solution you are offering is restricting or making illegal all of the other solutions that could arise out of people working together or businesses or charities or individuals or local civic groups or whatever it is, then you're not just offering a solution you're killing thousands of other potential solutions. You are giving preferential treatment to a government response at the expense of every other response that could potentially exist or already exists. And it is critical that we point this out. And one of the best ways to talk about this, Hazlitt did this in his book, Economics in One Lesson. Now you may be asking like, okay, why am I reading a book on economics when we're talking about larger political theory? The reason why is because Hazlitt illustrated a very important point, and it was the seen versus the unseen. It is very easy for people to imagine a new government agency, bureaucracy, uh, program, whatever it is. It's easy for them to see the problem or the challenge that they're individually facing. What is more difficult to see is all the different ways, the creative ways, the peaceful ways that that problem could be addressed if the government wasn't monopolizing the process for addressing it. And more often than not, when the government decides to address a problem, it not only takes from other people in order to address it, a lot of times, many times, I would argue most times, it actually restricts other people from being able to help solve the same challenge. And one of the biggest problems, especially when you try to do this at the federal level, is that you now have a relatively small group of people trying to solve a problem which might take on very different shapes in different parts of the country, but now they're trying to solve it exclusively from Washington, D.C., or at least predominantly from Washington, D.C., and in the midst and in the process of that, they have robbed everybody else of the opportunities, the options, and the resources to address those problems in a way that would be far more effective. So instead of just saying, that's not a legitimate role of government, instead of just saying, we don't think the government should be doing this. What we should be saying is, why in the world would you restrict all of the other solutions that could come about to this problem? Why would you restrict all of the other options and put the decisions now in the hands of a bunch of bureaucrats and politicians?
who, by the way, don't have a good track record for solving problems. And so the question becomes is, okay, Democrats, are you really trying to solve my problem or are you trying to solve your problem of getting reelected? That's an important question because before we go into anything else that we're going to talk about, we need to reevaluate the situation. We need to reframe the way that we make the argument, which is not just to say we don't think the government should be doing this. What we should say is when the government does these things, that has consequences, not just for you as a taxpayer, not just for you as a business owner, not just for you as someone that needs a quality education or quality health care. It has consequences in the, in the effect that it restricts or makes illegal or even punishes other people for trying to come up with solutions that don't fit into the framework the monopolistic framework that the government has offered. So they are not the party of the solutions. They are the party of government power. And that's how we need to frame up what exactly that they're doing. Okay, so that's the, again, one of the most important things is how do we frame our argument from the beginning? We have to make sure that we understand that we are every bit, we every bit believe in solutions as much as the other guy. The difference is, is who's going to come up with the solutions and who do you put your faith in? And quite frankly, just a little funny aside here, I find it like ridiculous and to some degree hysterical and to a large degree sad that the same people that are saying that our government is inextricably rooted in racism and white supremacy and oppression is the same government that they want to have all this power in order to solve problems as opposed to diffusing power and not giving as much power to independent politicians or bureaucrats, and instead putting it back in the power of people to be able to make their own decisions. So we, we have a unique opportunity to point out the intellectual inconsistency and the overall superiority of a solution which empowers people as opposed to bureaucracies. And that should be the framework where we go into these six categories, six categories of issues that I think conservatives have an opportunity to run on if we do it correctly. The first one is education. And I'm basing this in part on what we're seeing, um, not only here in Virginia, we see this a lot in Loudoun County, Fairfax County. They've been in the news consistently because of the things with, um, you know, some of the things that are being forced on our, our kids at relatively early ages, some of the requirements uh, for teachers to go through in order to get their license to teach in Virginia. And we're seeing similar things across the country. Some of the books that they found in, in school libraries have not only been arguably pornographic, but, you know, pedof uh, pedophilia in nature. And so parents are, are rising up against this. And the question will be is, what is the solution? Now, again, some conservatives will say, well, the solution is put conservatives in power. And instead of CRT in 1619, we'll give you the 1776 project. I'm going to make a different argument. I think what we need to be arguing for here is, is the opportunity for different parents to be able to find academic solutions, educational solutions that work for their individual children, right? Because the, one of my biggest problems with the way the left has managed education is that it is somewhat monopolistic. It's this idea that the government is going to finance and manage your child's education, and you're pretty much stuck with it unless you can afford an alternative. And this has led to a lot of parents to include parents on the left that might be frustrated that so much money goes into the football program as opposed to the music program. Well, again, when you're forcing all of these kids into a government school based off of their address and the, the powers that be have a vested interest in increasing the administrative staff within these schools as opposed to the teaching staff, or they have a, a vested interest in increasing the amount of administrators rather than giving teachers pay raises because the larger, the larger uh, staff population, the more people you have paying into teachers unions, right? You're, you're creating a whole host of perverse incentives, not to mention the fact that you're creating an environment where essentially you're not operating based off of individual choice, 
You're operating based off of whatever the powers that be have determined are their ideological objectives. So if Republicans are controlling it, well, then they get to force a certain agenda. If Democrats are uh, controlling it, they get to force a different agenda. We, we, there is a third option here, and that third option here is take the power out of the hands of politicians and bureaucrats and put it back into the hands of the actual consumers of education, which is arguably the students and their parents. Right, so when you have whatever system you want to choose, whether it's dollars following students or if it's just giving large uh, tax credits to people that choose to educate their children uh, in a way that works best for their child, there has to be a certain degree of trust for the actual consumer of the education. Now, the response that we get back is, well, some parents will do bad things or some parents don't care. Yeah, that's true. And some teachers sleep with their 14-year-old students. Right, so sorry, you don't get to claim that because some parents are idiots, Therefore, we're going, to give, we're going to give politicians or bureaucrats all of the control over the curriculum or what their school day looks like, right? They, it, it's not that one solution provides perfection and the other one has problems. No, all, all approaches to education have challenges. The question is, is do you get better results when consumers of the actual product or service have more control, or do you get better results when politicians and bureaucrats have control? I would argue that we see everywhere else in the marketplace that people like to have control over what it is they're consuming. They like to have options. They like to be able to choose. They don't want to be forced into a one-size-fits-all solution. So when we argue for school choice, and again, this can, this can be more access to charter schools. It can be uh, tax credits or tax breaks for people that choose to educate their child uh, outside of a, a government-run school system. It can be dollars following students. It can be the idea that the government uh, can help subsidize education, but it will not administer education. There is any number of solutions that we can provide that, that actually answer that question of who is going to be in control of the quality of the education. Because Nothing is more devastating, especially to people that, that are relying upon that education to be able to climb out of poverty or to be able to climb out of difficult circumstances. Nothing is more frustrating than condemning that child to a school that is failing them and then saying, you don't get any other options. And that's the compassionate choice because this is the one the government controls. No, we should be empowering that parent to be able to get their child the education they need. We should also be recognizing that the individual educational requirements of each children are vastly different depending on the skills, the abilities, and the objectives of the individual child. And so let's have a marketplace for ideas and let's allow the marketplace to be able to compete for those students instead of being told that there is no marketplace, there is a government monopoly and the government school will decide what your child gets. And if you don't like it, show up at a school board meeting, yell all you want, and maybe in four years something will change, but probably not. Right? That is not the better solution. So that's the way we need to talk about educational choices. This idea where, look, we're not telling your school to spend more money on football or more money on music. We're not telling your school how to teach history. You know who's going to decide that? You as the consumer of education. We're going to facilitate, or we might help facilitate, you being able to get that education, but ultimately, you're going to be able to go into the marketplace of ideas and services, and you're going to be able to decide which educational outcomes best suit your child's needs. And it's not going to be a politician doing it on your behalf in order to get reelected or to pander to certain political interests. Right? So that's the first one, education. Next one taxes. 
And specifically, what sort of taxes are we going to abolish or get rid of? Now, I think when we're talking about this, there, there's obviously the, the left has done a good job of, of pushing this narrative that the rich don't pay their fair share. They never really define who the rich are. It's a constantly a moving target. And they never define what a fair share is. Because if they did that, if they actually said, okay, here's the rich people and here's a fair share, here's what would end up happening. They would actually have to commit to taking in that money and if it didn't produce the results they wanted or produce poor economic results because people were fleeing the country to avoid the, the burdens and taxes, or the money that they took in was still not enough to pay for all the things that they wanted to do, then they would have to come back and say, okay, we were wrong. And we all know which direction they would say they were wrong in. They would say, oh yeah, we were wrong about who's rich. It's actually these people, not just these people. And we were wrong about what a fair share is. We thought it was this, but it's actually this, right? N nothing is going to you know, satiate their need for more of your money. So we need to talk about what are all alternatives. At the state level, I know in Virginia, we have things called uh, uh, like beepole taxes, where a, a local business is taxed on their equipment. So that local business, as many local businesses do, might not be making actually money on their product for the first couple of years, right? But now the government is coming in and taxing them, not just on, the, on profits, it's taxing them just on the stuff that they own in order to function and operate that business in the first place. So it, it's a ridiculous form of taxation. We should talk specifically about getting rid of it. At the federal level, we have a lot of other taxes where people are going to need to understand that they are, they are, um, they are bad for everybody. So for instance, when we, when we talk about corporate taxes, there's this mindset that, oh, well, corporate taxes are only paid by rich corporations. No, corporate taxes are paid by all of us in the form of higher prices, lost jobs, lost benefits, lost opportunities. Right? There's a reason why when we lowered the overall corporate tax rate, more businesses started coming back to the United States or opening the United States is because we became more competitive with other countries to include all these European countries that the left likes to hold up as examples that have lower corporate taxes. We also have to stop punishing people for what they earn. So one of the solutions that we can talk about there is either a flat tax or we can talk about a, a, a national sales tax and getting rid of the other ones. But the problem is that we have to offer specific solutions and we have to talk specifically about how they're going to benefit everyone, right? And a lot of that argument has to be based off of the fact that when you make the United States a more competitive place to do business, when you make it easier to do business in the United States, it creates greater economic opportunities for everyone. And that's what we want. We don't want the sort of environment where we are punishing our businesses, right? In, in the name of taking care of the poor and the end result is businesses leave and the poor just become more dependent because now they don't have the job opportunities that they need, right? Third one, healthcare. Specifically on this one, we need to be talking about all the different ways that the government has actually made it more difficult to get you the healthcare you want. Here's a great example that I love, which is it falls under what we call scope of practice. Um, now, again, as we talk about some of these issues, I'll throw out terms like scope of practice or occupational licensure reform and things like that. I'm not advocating that these are the specific terms that you use in your commercials or when you're talking to people, right? Those are, those are the academic terms or the legal terms with reference to what we're trying to achieve. But ultimately, we need to put this into, into you know, everyday relatable stories that people can understand. So for instance, when I talk about scope of practice, uh, what I talk about it is from the realm of, you know, in Virginia, and we actually had some bipartisan support on this, expanding the scope of practice for nurse practitioners. What does that mean? It means nurse practitioners are now allowed to do things that they have been doing forever, but needed a doctor to sign off on, right? And, and some of those things you might be able to argue are appropriate. Other things just don't make any sense at all. But what it does is it creates this sort of regulatory environment within healthcare where people can lobby the government to make certain restrictions that makes their services more valuable, even though somebody else could do it at a lower price, 
So the more we talk about allowing people that are qualified to be able to do stuff, to allow you as a, as a consumer of healthcare to be able to enter into a contract with someone that you trust in order to provide you medical care without having to ask the government's permission first, that's really critical because what it does is it allows for more supply of medicine. And the only way that you get something, uh, the only way you get a product or service that has quality, accessibility, and affordability is you have to increase the supply, right? If you don't increase the supply, and you just try to artificially come in with government regulations, then what ends up happening is prices either go up or you get rationing, you get less. So you either get higher prices or less accessibility. And that is what the government has been doing. They've been playing this shell game where they'll create a, a restriction in supply over here and then they'll try to subsidize the demand with more money or, or they'll, they'll try some other game. What we need to do is say, look, we're going to increase the supply. We're gonna create more doctors, more nurses, more hospitals. We're gonna create more, um, um, categories like, like medics, like why can't a combat medic, which does all kinds of complicated procedures when they're overseas in Iraq or Afghanistan, why is it when they come home, if they wanted to actually, you know, open up a little clinic or work to do like very, very basic stuff like checkups or checking blood pressure or going and checking on a COVID patient or, or fixing stitches, why do they have to go through all these different legal loopholes in order to actually get into that environment? Why can't they do that based off of the credentials that they already have? So whenever we talk about that, it's about, look, we're gonna make it easier for qualified people to be able to operate, to be able to operate across state lines. We're gonna be a friendly environment to medical people and to medical schools. That is a concept that I think people understand and everyone intuitively gets it. That if you have more doctors, if you have more nurses, what it's gonna do is it's gonna create a situation where prices are not as high because, and not only that, but the whole price transparency component and not having to do everything through your insurance company, right? If you're actually bringing down the prices to where I no longer feel like, you know, I have to pay $1,200 a month with a really ex experienced health insurance program that might not actually cover all of my needs or my family's needs. If now I can engage in a, in a small co-op at a local level with a doctor that I know, and I know what the prices are because neither one of us are gonna have to rely on an insurance company or some of the third party payer. Well, then that, that causes quality to go up because now I have more people competing over my business. It also causes quality to go up because now I'm, I'm able to actually engage in, in a relationship with the medical staff that, that I'm operating with. Um, and, and we don't have to go through third parties in order to pay for stuff. And then finally, it also increases access because now there's, there's more people and there's more opportunities available to me. So all of those things work and that's one of the things that we should be talking about on healthcare. And that has to do specific policies or scope of practice, occupational licensing reform, and things like certificate of public need where the government actually restricts somebody from coming in and providing you additional medical services unless the comp your competition agrees to let you do it, right? It's, it's ridiculous. All right. Fourth point is when we talk about businesses and supply chain, and a lot of what this comes down to is removing regulations. And so you wanna pick some of the most ridiculous regulations that most people can agree on. So for instance, we have a huge issue with our ports right now. I mean, there was, a, there was an article in CNN talking about how our grocery stores are not gonna feature all of the same things. And, th and there's a lot of different reasons for this, but a lot of it has to do with, with two components. One has to do with really, really strict labor contracts where the federal government basically comes in through the National Labor Relations Board and they give preferential treatment to labor unions or, or union labor. And then they have certain ports which have closed shops, which means you are not allowed to provide services at that port unless you're a part of a union. Now, if you're, if you're already working there and they go to closed shop, they can actually fire you for refusing to join the union. That's part of the problem. That, that actually creates the sort of problems that we're seeing right now at ports. Not to mention the fact that we have other absurd regulations like the Jones Act, right? The Jones Act requires that if you're gonna be offloading something in an American port or going American port to American port, you have to have an American ship doing it, 
right? And again, this, this doesn't make any sense. It actually incentivizes people to go through more expensive processes to uh, avoid this sort of regulatory control by the government. So removing things like the Jones Act, allowing for more right to work and allowing for people to actually do jobs that they want to do and not be forced to join a union as a condition as a part of their employment is critical in allowing for more options and reducing some of the regulatory barriers that a lot of our businesses are going through. Right, what's another one? National security and public safety. This one should be pretty easy for us because the Democrats have done such a horrible job. You see it in Afghanistan, you see it at the southern border, you see it in across uh, cities all over the country. So <clears throat> when we talk about this, there's a couple things that we need to focus on, I think, in order to be effective. One, talking about community policing, and that's the idea is that we want police departments that are well-equipped, well-funded, well-trained, and very integrated into the communities that they're serving, right? We don't want them being constantly pulled away by federal agencies that are allowing them to reprioritize their focus away from local priorities and to federal priorities, right? We wanna make sure that they're well-funded and trained enough at the local level to be able to focus on what the locality wants and needs, not what some federal agency wants. So that's an important on the law enforcement front. When it comes to our immigration and border security, I think with everything that we see going on on the border right now, we have a very easy argument to make with respect to why there needs to be more resources at the border and why we need to drastically change our immigration reform in order to make it merit-based, right? So it's not that we want to shut down all immigration, or at least I don't want to. I just want to make a, a common-sense, merit-based immigration form. And I also want people to know that if you come here legally and you want to be an American citizen and you're bringing something to the table, we're, we're going to make that process simple and under, uh, easy to understand. If, however, you're, you're breaking the law, well, then there's going to be consequences for that that could potentially affect you ever being able to come to the United States, so do it correctly. And then finally, the issue that we need to be talking about has to do with voter integrity. And there's a smart way to do this, and there's a stupid way to do this. I'm going to talk about what I think is the smart way to do it. Smart way to talk about voter integrity, in, in my opinion, is this. We know that there were abnormalities, right? So let's just, let's just assume for a second that we're not making any larger argument about who won the election, right? Let's just take that. I'm, I'm not saying you have to believe that. I'm just saying let's take that off the table for a second and let's look at the most rational argument that we can make, right, that, that doesn't turn off people that don't like that particular argument, right? Because, Ben, what we're talking about is how do we get the policies that we want implemented, right? Some people absolutely believe the election was stolen. Some people believe that it was the safest election that we ever had. Let, let's focus on some of the areas where we can get a majority of people to agree. And one of the areas that I do think we can get people to agree on is the fact that there was a lot of abnormalities. And when you're trying to do everything by mail, that's a problem. In fact, there was a recent poll that came out looking exclusively at minority voters, and a lot of minority voters are concerned by mail-in uh, voting only. Uh, most uh, majority voters do think that you should have some sort of photo ID in order to vote. Um, they want some sort of you know, protection for our elections to make sure that it's done correctly. They want to be able to protect it against things like hacking. So the, the overall strategy from Republicans should be easy to vote, hard to cheat. How do you do that? Well, again, I think when it comes to things like no excuse absentee, I don't have a problem with that. When it comes to a certain period of time for early voting, I think that can be acceptable. Now, if it's too long, I think we run into problems. If you have uh, no excuse absentee, but then you also don't require one to show any sort of voter ID or any sort of evidence that the person casting the absentee vote is the actual person, is the actual voter, I think that's problematic. And again, a vast majority of Americans agree with that principle. I think things like same-day voter registration is just a recipe for disaster. We, we as responsible voters can register prior to voting so that the registrar's office or the DMV or whoever registered has an opportunity to be able to verify that we are a legal voter, right? That we're not voting illegal or you're casting a ballot in someone else's name. And I think a certain amount of period uh, of time before the election 
a certain deadline to register before you vote, I think that is perfectly responsible. And guess what? The vast majority of Americans do as well. The other thing that we need to look at that might be a little bit more intense, but I think is also potentially valuable, we need to look to go back at going to paper ballots. So this idea that we're going to do everything through machines has gotten a lot of people nervous because we all know that there is the ability for a machine to be hacked. You can argue all day long on whether or not that's probable or not probable, but it can be done. And so that's one of the things that we need to guard against. Paper ballots might provide a way to do that. Another thing that I think we need to be focused on is, is a policy that I hope could get good bipartisan support. And that is when you go into your precinct and vote, you have your precinct workers there. I think it's perfectly appropriate for there to be representatives from the different campaigns that are involved to be able to just observe. I think the votes should be able to go into a single place, which should be under video surveillance. And at the end of the night, when the poll place is shut down, you, cut, you count the votes right there. So from the moment that you saw the, from the moment that the, the voter thing, the box came in and it was confirmed that it was empty, to the moment that it closed and you open up those boxes again and you start to vote, you have had eyes on it the entire time by people from both, you know, represented from the various campaigns or candidates involved, all right, as, as well, or, or legal representation, as well as the, the poll officials, et cetera. And what it does is it minimizes the ability for someone to cheat. And I think if we minimize that ability, you're going to have people with a lot more faith in how the elections were conducted. So, you know, for anybody on the left saying, well, the only reason people don't trust elections is because, you know, irresponsible Republicans are Trump. Garbage. Democrats were saying they didn't trust the election in 2016. Democrats were saying they didn't trust the elections in Georgia in 2018 with Stacey Abrams. Okay, it was only 2020 that all of a sudden you, you were perfectly comfortable with everything. And, and it was 2020 where we had the most last minute changes to election laws because of COVID um, right before the, to the point where a judge in Virginia even said it was done inappropriately. So let's make it easy to vote, hard to cheat. And those are some of the specific policies that can conservatives run on. All right, I hope you found this helpful. Let's, let's go ahead and recap. So first of all, <clears throat> conservatives can't just run against the other side. We have to actually provide specifics on what we'll do. We have to give you deadlines on when we'll do it, and we have to actually provide you a contrast from what is currently going on. When it comes to making the argument, whether it's our healthcare argument, our economic arguments, regulations, taxes, national defense, healthcare, et cetera, one of the most important things we have to do before we go into that larger conversation about policy is we have to once again articulate that it's not that the Democrats are all about solutions and Republicans are all about obstructing. What it is is Democrats favor government power and control over the problem solving process, right? That is their preferred method for solving problems, government control, bureaucracies and politicians, right? That's how it needs to be framed. Our preferred method of control or our preferred method of approaching problems is to say, there are certain things that the government does well and the government should focus on those things. In other areas, it may be more appropriate for the state level or maybe the local level or it's probably just appropriate to allow people either through the marketplace or through charity or through a number of other ways to try a number of solutions because challenges are not always the same wherever they're at. Challenges can change a lot based off of the geography that they're in. Challenges can change a lot based off of, you know, the individual, you know, populations within a particular area. So we want solutions every bit as much as the left. It's just that the left's preferred mechanism for solving problems is government force politicians, and bureaucracies. Our preferred method for solving problems is the government where it is appropriate, things like law enforcement, national defense, and some, a couple other areas, but predominantly by allowing free people to find solutions that work best for them locally and individually, as opposed to imposing a one-size-fits-all. So both want solutions. One, solution, one, one uh, solution is based off of government control, force, and coercion. 
The other is based primarily off of voluntarism and peaceful interaction within the marketplace, right? Once we establish that framework, then you go into all the different policies and you specifically talk about how would it benefit you as a parent if all of a sudden, instead of being told where your child will go to school, you had a $10,000 credit to be able to take them wherever you wanted. How would it benefit your business if instead of constantly facing taxes, which are causing you to either raise prices or fire employees, you could actually keep more of what you earn in order to expand the goods and services that you offer, right? How does it affect you when you go into the grocery store when all of a sudden you want the shelves empty or do you want the shelves full? If you want the shelves full, then this is what we need to do in order to get it. National security and public safety. You're someone living on the southern border right now and you're concerned about the safety or you're someone that desperately, you're someone that has um, fought very hard to get your family immigrated in the United States the legal and correct way. We're going to come alongside and help you. We're not going to give preferential treatment to people that cut in front of your family members. And then specifically when it comes to things like voter integrity, it's very easy. We want it to be easy to vote and hard to cheat. And here's the specific things that we're going to do. And if you don't think it should be hard to cheat, you make the other side explain why that is. All right, I'm Nick Freitas with Making the Argument. Thank you for joining us. Hope you found this helpful. Make sure you leave us a like, a share, a comment, a follow, all that good stuff. But let us know what you would like to see for future episodes. Once again, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.